May let us pray. Father, we first thank you for uh, the word that has gone forth so far and uh, for the songs of worship to you and the prayers that have been offered to you. We pray, Lord, this morning that they have been pleasing and acceptable uh, to you. Lord, we pray this morning for our church that uh, we may be filled with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and in spiritual understanding that Lord we may walk worthy of you fully pleasing you that we may be fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of you Lord may we be strengthened with all might by means of your spirit according to your glorious power we pray Lord for all patience and long suffering with joy as we go through our days and nights. And Lord, may we give thanks to you because Lord, you have qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. It is you, Lord, through the work of Christ who has made us acceptable unto you. You qualified us. We didn't qualify ourselves. There's nothing that we did there's no work that we did, Lord, to be accepted by you. It is only through the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf that has made us acceptable to you. And, Lord, you also delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us unto the kingdom of the Son, Jesus Christ, of his love. And, Father, we thank you as a church this morning that those of us in here who are believers that you have delivered us from the power of darkness, the power of Satan, the power that dominates this world and the world systems and ideologies and philosophies. Lord, we thank you that you have delivered us from that and rather transferred us into the kingdom of Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And Father, we know as a church that in the last days which began uh, when Christ ascended to heaven that perilous times would come that men would be lovers of themselves lovers of money bolsters, proud blasphemers disobedient to parents unthankful, unholy unloving unforgiving slanderers without self-control brutal despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty and high-minded, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying his power. But Lord, you tell us from such turn away. And I pray for our church this morning and for our sister churches that we turn away from such things Turn away from all these things that men seek after, having a form of godliness, but denying his power. May we not be the ones who are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. May we not be like those who are men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith. May we be careful, Lord, to follow the manner of life of of believers who are uh, living a life of godliness 
who are living a life of purpose and glorifying you, who are living a life of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who's living a life of long-suffering, persevering in their walk, no matter what the conditions may be. Lord, your word tells us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Lord, you tell us to continue in the things that we have learned and have been assured of, that we know the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make us wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray for our nation that our nation will be turned upside down and changed through the preaching of the biblical gospel. Because, Lord, we know that it is only by the gospel that men are saved, and it is only through salvation that men's hearts are changed. Lord, legislation has its place, but it can't change men's hearts. Electing people to office has its place. But Lord, no matter what is behind a politician's name, whether an R or a D, that cannot change men's hearts. Lord, it is only through the gospel, which has an effectual call, which calls men and women to repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. It is only through that, Lord, that hearts can be changed. So Lord, we, we pray for our nation that it be turned upside down by by changed hearts. Changed hearts lead to changed lives. And changed lives lead to a changed trajectory of our nation. Lord, we want to be those, as it was said, of Jason and the other brothers in Acts 17 and 6. We want to be those who have turned the world upside down. We want to be those, Lord, who, through our life, our changed life, to truly change the world. Lord, we pray for our sister churches, Anderson Bible, Grace Fellowship, Redeemer Church, Christian Fellowship, Mountain View Church, and other brothers uh, that partner with us, uh, Cody Hill at Iron City, and Brother Curly down First Baptist Lineville and other brothers, Lord, we, we pray for all of us that as men we shepherd the flock of God which is among us, serving as overseers and not uh, by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to us but being examples to the flock. Because, Lord, we have a chief shepherd who is Jesus Christ that we have to give an account to. And when he appears, we will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So, Father, persevere all of us as men as we lead our churches. And, Lord, as we come down to the ministry of the word, as we look at Ezra, the sixth chapter, and the cause of our joy being you, Father, I pray that you send your spirit to illuminate this passage to us. Help us to see the gospel truths that are in it. And Lord, help me by your spirit to preach this text 
in a way that is pleasing to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to Ezra, the sixth chapter. We're in the sixth part of our sermon series on this uh, book. And this may be a two-parter. I may not be able to finish everything today, but that's okay. I appreciate you all for giving me the grace to do that. Uh, we want to work our way through this text uh, well. And as I sent out in our sermon details uh, this uh, past Thursday, uh, this morning's topic is God, the source of our joy. And hopefully you had a chance to read Ezra 6. Um, there's no question the next couple of months. If somebody asks you, what is your pastor preaching about? You say, we're preaching through the book of Ezra right now. And then after that, it'll be the book of Nehemiah. And then it'll be the book of Esther. So uh, you all will know where we'll be in the next uh, few months in our uh, time in the word. So, a great majority of this chapter uh, focuses on the decree of uh, Darius, who was king at this time, and that he searched the uh, royal uh, records uh, to see what was said about the returning exiles. So, we're going to begin reading at the first uh, verse of this chapter. And it says, then King Darius issued a decree and a search was made in the archives or the house of the scrolls where the treasures were stored in Babylon. And at Akmatha in the palace that is in the province of, that word is Medea, not uh, Media. In Medea, a scroll was found and in it, a record was written thus. In the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. And this is the decree. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundation of it be firmly laid. Its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits with three rows of heavy stone and one row of new timber. Let the expenses be paid from the king's treasury and let the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple, which is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and taken back uh, to the temple, which is in Jerusalem, each to his own place and deposit them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tetanai, governor of the region beyond the river, and Shethnar Bosnai, and your companions, the Persians, who are beyond the river, keep yourselves far from there. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God on its site. Moreover, or in addition, I issue a decree as to what you should do for the elders of these Jews for the builders of this house of God. Let the cost be paid at the king's expense from taxes on the region beyond the river. This is to be given immediately to those men so that they are not hindered. And whatever they need, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings of the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests, 
who are in Jerusalem, let it be given them day by day without fail that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I issue a decree that whoever alters this edict, let a timber be pulled from his house and erected and let him be hanged on it and let his house be made a refuse heap because of this. And may the God who causes his name to dwell there destroy any king or people who put their hand to alter it or to destroy this house of God, which is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, issue a decree. Let it be done diligently. Excuse me. Then Tetanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shethabosnai and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, uh, uh, the prophet rather, Zechariah, the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. The children of Israel, then the priests and the Levites and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God. 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. They assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. And descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were ritually clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord, God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Man, may the word of God speak. Our service topic came from that verse where it said the Lord made them joyful in verse 22. I began my sermon with uh, a question. How high is the pursuit of joy on our priority list as Christians, not as unbelievers because unbelievers don't have joy? But how high is our pursuit of joy? I think the problem is that many Christians uh, view the Christian life primarily in terms of duty and obedience, which is okay because those are parts of it. 
the Christian life is about duty, our duty to work, our duty uh, to love, honor, and serve others, and obedience to God and his commands. Those are parts of the Christian life. But how many Christians view the pursuit of joy, gladness, and delight in God as a prime duty? We talk about it all the time, that as Christians, we're not just to delight in God on Sunday mornings between 10.30 and about 12 o'clock. That's not the only time we're called to delight in God. We are called to delight in God every single moment of our lives. Even through the drudgery of work or parenting or being uh, married or uh, going to school or whatever the case may be, we are called as Christians to delight in God. But I think all too often we see God as a stern, cosmic cure joy who doesn't want anyone to get too carried away with having a good time in life. Some Christians, unfortunately, view God that way because they have a wrong view of God. The Puritans, you know, the Puritans lived in the uh, fifth, uh, 16th, 17th century, rather, in the 1600s to early 1700s. In fact, a lot of Puritans settled here in uh, America when they, when they came over in the 1600s from England. And the Puritans were very instrumental in shaping uh, the founding of our nation. But the Puritans often falsely character—I'm sorry—the Puritans are of, often falsely characterized uh, as being against joy and pleasure. Uh, someone joked once about a Puritan as a person who suffers from an overwhelming dread that somewhere, sometime, somehow, somebody may be enjoying themselves. You know, the Puritans have received a bad uh, reputation because of the word Puritan, but. The Puritans are the ones who said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, that is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, what is the primary purpose of man? Because you have a lot of people and even Christians who walk this earth wondering what is their purpose in life? What is God's will for my life? Perhaps some of you all have struggled with that. You know what God's will is for your life? What you're doing right now. Because we think that is some deep knowledge that we have to have. Something that God hasn't revealed yet that we're supposed to do. But the Puritans answered the question, what is the chief end of man? What is, what is man's ultimate purpose? What did God create, create us for? Why did God make us in his image? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, John Piper, in his, his classic book, Desiring God, uh, he modified that classic sentence by saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. When we enjoy God, we will glorify him. He also rightly said that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Many times we want it the opposite way. We want God to glorify us rather than us glorifying God. When we delight 
in God, we will enjoy God. And when we enjoy God, we will seek to glorify him. Because God ultimately is the source of our delight. Remember, we've said it for the last few months, everything begins and ends with our view of God. Do we delight in God? If we delight in God, then we will delight in work. If we delight in God, we will delight in serving others. We will delight in giving. We will delight in being husbands and wives and sons and daughters and and teachers. We will delight in our vocations. But we have to delight in God first. And that's where the joy comes. So, so if glorifying God is our highest aim, then finding joy and satisfaction in God must be intentional. It must be lifelong. It must be a pursuit. The joy that God imparts to his people is the same theme that we see in Ezra 6. This chapter begins with uh, Darius searching uh, for the decree that was issued by Cyrus. And then he finds it. He reads it. And he instructs Tetanai to follow it. And Darius issued his own decree. So the temple work was finally finished. The Lord's elect. His chosen people. Celebrated. The dedication of this temple. With joy. It said that in verse 16. The children of Israel, the priests and Levites, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. And this was followed by a celebration of the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And they did that with joy. Ezra explained the source of that joy in verse 22 again. For the Lord caused them to rejoice. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So what do we know about joy? First of all, joy is one of the mega themes of scripture. And when, what is a mega theme? A mega theme is a theme that is present in a majority of scripture, starting from Genesis to revelation it is something that appears as a principle that appears over and over in scripture so joy and gladness are mega themes in scripture Moses told Israel that they should seek the Lord at the place where he would choose and that there they shall rejoice in all their undertakings in which the Lord their God had blessed them he said this in uh, Deuteronomy 12 and 5. And later he warned them. If you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart. Therefore you shall serve your enemies. Whom the Lord will send against you. This is Deuteronomy uh, 28. The Psalms are full of joy and gladness. God is the psalmist exceeding joy in Psalm 43 and 4. We are commanded to shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. That's Psalm 
100, verses 1 through 2. Psalm 32 and 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 5 and 11 says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad, and let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. Psalm 16 and 11. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christ himself told his disciples to rejoice that their names are recorded in the book of life. And then Christ rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit at the thought of God's sovereign ways in salvation. We find that recorded in Luke 10, verses 20 through 21. So Jesus wasn't some type of stoic, cure joy. He rejoiced also. The writer in Hebrews talked about Christ enduring the cross for the joy that was set before him. That was Hebrews 12 and 2. Why did Christ endure the cross? Because the joy of being at the right hand of the Father was set before him. He told disciples that he had spoken to them so that his joy may be in him and that their joy may be full. That's John 15 and 11. The reason that we ought to ask in Christ's name and receive was that our joy may be made that's John 16 and 24. The Apostle Paul commanded us, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's Philippians 4 and 4. He told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1 and 24. And the Philippians in Philippians 1 and 25. That he was working with them for their joy. Paul also listed joy as one of the fruit of the Spirit. I'm not going to exhaust the rest of the list, but you all see that joy and rejoicing and gladness is a mega theme in Scripture, that it is present throughout all of written Scripture. <laughs> Revelation 19, 6-7, the Apostle John pictures the saints rejoicing throughout eternity. It reads, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So from the beginning of scripture to the end, we see the theme, we see the call to joy and rejoicing and gladness in the Lord and because of the Lord. And this is barely scratching the surface of this theme. Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist of the 18th century, he said that joy is the very essence of the Christian faith. It is the very essence of it. It is not optional or secondary. It is a primary issue for the believer to rejoice and have joy and to take joy 
in God. Amen. So our big idea uh, this morning. God's aim for our joy in him and his sovereignty is the means for us to know the joy of his provision, his providence, praising him, and of purity and obedience to him. God's aim is for our joy. Do you all know that? God wants us to be joyful. God's aim is for our joy. That's why when we glory in him, he causes us to be joyful. So we're going to look at the first two principles this morning. So let's look at our first principle from this text. God's aim is for our joy in his providence. Look at Tetanai's letter. So we have the letter uh, we read in chapter 5 last week. His letter to Stop the rebuilding because in his letter he said that these people did not pay their taxes. They did not honor the king, you know, so forth and so on. So he read a letter to the king. And remember, the rebuilding had ceased for 17 years. And then God has sent his prophets Haggai and Zechariah to prophesy to Zerubbabel and Jeshua to do the work to rebuild the temple. Remember, not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That was how the temple was going to be built with God's power and not theirs so his letter was to no avail he lost his bid to put an end to God's redemptive plan for his chosen people it was by God's providence that Darius or Darius found the decree of Cyrus because that decree was written some 18 years before And this was no easy undertaking. <laughs> they didn't have filing cabinets. They didn't have electronic means of finding files. They didn't have a jump drive or, or a USB drive or file G at your job that is a shared drive by everybody. They didn't, they didn't have uh, in, the, in the King's Palace stacks and stacks of filing cabinets with uh, manila folders inside of hanging folders in them. So it was a mighty task for uh, Darius to go look for a decree that was written 18 years before. That was no small task. Now, what we have to understand is the words decree and an edict have the force of a public pronouncement of a law given by a king or a ruling body. A decree can refer to a judicial decision or a religious ordinance. Uh, they're public and they're written proclamations, and they were widely used by the Persian emperors. And the terms were most frequently in those books that reflected life under the Persian Empire. So what we're seeing as we read this text is how life was in the Middle Eastern countries during that time in Persia. And there was something that distinguished the laws of the Medes. Medes comes from the word Medea uh, that we read here. And the Persians was that edicts could not be altered. Whatever the king said had to be followed. It could not be reversed. It was irrevocable. 
It was an irrevocable edict. That's why, you know, at the end of the chapter, that it was said that whoever does not stop this, I'm saying whoever tries to stop it, guess what? They were going to be hanged. Because those edicts were like final law. Whatever the king decreed, it had to be followed. So that's why Darius had to go and look for that decree to make sure that Cyrus said what was said that he said. So it was by God's providence that Darius had commanded Tetanai and his companions to not intervene with the work on the house of the Lord. That was totally God's providence. It was by God's providence that the temple was built according to the command of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, as we see in verse 14. There would have been no command by these kings without God commanding them. Why? Because the heart of the king is in the hands of the Lord. So the kings had no other choice but to do it. Because it was the command of God. And you have to understand, these were pagan kings. These kings did not believe in the God of Israel. But they know that they needed Israel to prosper so that they could have Israel's blessing. That's why I was saying here in verse 10, that they may offer sacrifices of sweet aroma to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his son. So the, the, the king was very pragmatic. He knew that if everything went well with Israel because of him, that they would pray for him also. He wasn't a dummy. But this was all by providence. And it was by providence also that the temple was completed exactly seven years after the first temple was destroyed. The official ending of the 70 years was March 12, 5, around 515 B.C. And the finishing of the temple actually marked the end of the 70 years of exile because the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. So 70 years later would have been around 516, 515 uh, B.C. So the completion of the temple was when the uh, exile had officially ended and worship was able to proceed in Jerusalem. So the question is, why should we rejoice in God's providence? Because God protects his people and he engineers all of our circumstances. And God engineers all the circumstances around us. No matter how big or small, in order to accomplish his plans for us and to accomplish his people. Every single thing that happens in our life and that happens around us is not by accident. It is not by a stroke of, quote, bad luck or a stroke of, quote, good luck or good karma or bad karma or all those other paganistic ideas or because the stars aligned or the universe was on your side and all this other new age garbage that's out there. No, it was not because of any of that. It's surely because of God's engineering and superintending of our lives. 
we have to know that God is always working behind the scenes in our life. He's superintending, he's engineering everything in our life for his glory. Do you know that you had no choice in when you were going to be born, where you were going to be born, or how you were going to be born, or under what circumstances you were going to be born? You had no choice in that matter. And your mom didn't either. That doctor may have said you will be born on this date. <laughs> They're rarely right, but that's okay. You get a ballpark figure. Sometimes it can be two weeks earlier or two weeks later or one day later or two months earlier or three months earlier. But even under those circumstances, it is still under God's sovereign plan for your life. Where you live, where you work, all those things are under God's sovereign providence. And we're going to talk about providence more in a couple of weeks uh, in the next two chapters, but we must just know basically as we look at this chapter that we see God's providence at work. Everything happened, the timing of everything happened exactly as God had planned it. Those who were in exile could not control those 70 years period. They couldn't control, had the temple not been delayed in rebuilding, it wouldn't have been completed in 70 years, it would have been completed earlier. But it was a reason why it was delayed, because it was part of God's sovereign plan. And we ought to rejoice in God's providence. I've said this before. Had I stayed in the Navy one more year, I probably would have never met my wife. Or if I didn't go to the Navy at all and went straight to college, I would have graduated college before she finished high school. I would have been out of college. She would have never met this wonderful man named Ronald Haygood. <laughs> but it was all divine providence that I was in the Navy as long as I was and I went to the college that I went to and that I worked in the library on the first floor and she worked on the third floor. We were work study students and that's how we met. There wasn't uh, good luck or anything. That was God. That was divine providence. If we both didn't have work study, I would have never met her more than likely in those circumstances. All of your life, friends, is under God's superintending. There's nothing in your life that's random. That's a word that uh, millennials like to use a lot, that, that, that things are random. No, nothing is random. There's nothing random. All is under God's care. All is under God's sovereign hand of providence. All of it is. All of it. Just think about your life. Think about things that have happened in your life. It's all through providence. And we ought to rejoice in that just as Israel did. Our next principle from this passage is God's aim is for our joy in his provision. Now, when they initially returned uh, from exile, we saw in the first chapter, 
in chapters four, I mean verses four and verses seven through eleven, that provision was made for the initial return uh, of the Babylonians. That the citizens, uh, I'm sorry, for Israel rather, that the citizens had prepared things for them to take on their uh, journey. God used Darius's decree to provide the animals and other items needed uh, for the Lord's people to perform sacrifices and give offerings to him. If you look at verses 9 through 11 here in chapter 6, you will see. It says, and whatever they need, whatever they need, bulls, rams, and lambs, wheat, salt, wine, and oil, according to the request of the priests who are in Jerusalem, whatever the priests needed, he says what? Let it be given them day by day without fail. Without fail. God's aim is for our joy in his provision. God provides for his church in our day by whatever means he sees fit. God provided for Israel because their chief goal was to worship God, to delight in God. They delighted in God through their sacrifices made to him. And their delight in God brought them joy. God's aim is for us to joy in his provision. When God provides for us, we should what? Rejoice. We should be glad. Whatever means God uses, and God is only going to use legal means, by the way, uh, to say that parenthetically, okay? <laughs> and I mean, go out there and, you know, do nefarious things to, to get money. Say, oh, thank you, God. No, no, no. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. But God provided for his people. The king said, whatever they need. Now, who you think did that in this pagan king's heart? God worked in this man's heart to provide for people whose God he didn't even worship. God uses whomever he wills to provide for us. Some of the companies that we work for, we don't know how wicked the people are that run these companies. By the way they work some of our people, they are wicked. <laughs> all they're worried about is what? Money. Production. That's all they care about. You're just a number. You're just a commodity to them. A lot of our companies are run by wicked people that are only concerned about uh, money. Whatever means to an end it is to make money. But even in that, God gives them the wisdom to make a way for us to be provided for. And we are to rejoice in that. And God provides for his church in our day by whatever means he sees fit. If you think about it here in America especially, The church still enjoys the provision of God. And I'll tell you how. We have tax breaks. Churches don't have to pay uh, taxes. They don't have to pay property taxes. 
Like we had our own building. We wouldn't have to pay the county property taxes at all. Our donations are tax deductible. And the generous giving of the Lord's people. Christians are the most giving people in this nation. And why is that? Because God provides. We enjoy the provision of God. And we're blessed because of that. And we, ju- we rejoice in God because of that. God is the one who provides for his people as we pray and trust in him. He provides. He always provides. He always will provide. And in addition to God providing the idols for worship, he also provided his word. See that in verse 14. So the elders of the Jews built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. It is not just material prosperity, but it is also prospering through his word. They also prospered through his sovereignty. We see that again in verse 14. They built and finished it, the temple, according to the commandment of the God of Israel. That's the sovereignty of God. So they prosper according to his sovereignty. And they also prosper according to his strength. Because again, they need the strength of the prophesied word to go forth because those Prophets, as we read last week, they prophesied to Zerubbabel and to Jeshua to finish the work by God's spirit, by the help, by the work of God's spirit. So God had provided them his strength. Then the scriptures say the joy of the Lord is my strength. So not only should we rejoice for God's provision for his church but we should also rejoice for his provision in our lives too do we really sit down and take time to reflect and rejoice in how God provides young people do you all sit and thank God for how your parents provide for you how your parents take care of you how your grandparents take care of you do you all really sit and think about that I'm putting you all on the spot. But do you all sit and think about that? Many times when we're young, we don't think about that unless someone tells us to. You don't have to pay rent or a mortgage. You don't chip in on the power bill. You don't pay for your car insurance. You don't even pay for your own cell phones. Do you sit and just think and just Thank God that these things are provided for me. Some of y'all got your own bedrooms, got your own TVs. My brother will tell you, we, didn't, we never grew up having our own bedroom. We always shared a bedroom. We had a bunk bed. We didn't have a TV in our room. I know this was back in the stone age of the 1970s and 80s, uh, <laughs> but we still didn't have a, we had two TVs in our house, one in the, then and my mom and dad had one in their room. You all got your own rooms, perhaps your own TVs, your own. Some of y'all get cell phones from the time you're born. Now, you know, 
Come out the wound is as soon as you're able to hold something, you got a phone. You all are so fortunate. But how often do you sit down and just think? And Lord, thank you that my parents, my grandparents, my my mama, my mama, my papa provide for me to have things. How often do you sit and think and, and, and just thank the Lord? Because you, you 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 take it for granted. We did when we were kids because you know we were sinners and we still are sinners and and in our sinful hearts we. We have sometimes the sin of ingratitude where uh, it's like the more people do for you, the more ungrateful you are. That's the sinful heart. So young people, my challenge to you all is to sit and reflect on how you are provided for, how God provides for your parents and your grandparents and how they in turn take that provision and provide for you. Because y'all don't look like y'all are hungry and homeless and helpless and living on the streets. We had to eat school lunch every day. We had no choice. We had to sit down and eat what was in front of us. Y'all are so blessed. Sit, reflect, thank God. For his provision. Adults. We have to be thankful also. In the drudgery of work. I had a hard week at work this past week. It was only a four day week. With the conversion and everything. And you know. It wasn't physically hard. It was mentally hard and draining. Because we didn't get a lot of breaks. Um, But. In the midst of all that. We still had to persevere. A lot of us have jobs that, that don't foster joyful thoughts in our hearts and that's real but how many times do we sit and thank God that we're not getting $220 a week from the state of Alabama for unemployment are we thankful do we sit and just thank God for provision for us being able to provide for our families provide for our spouses to be able to have a roof over our head Do we thank God for his provision? Or do we take it for granted? And like Israel said, no, it was better when we were back in Egypt. (laughs) I want more. Or do we stop and thank the Lord? The scripture tells us, 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. Paul says, in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God concerning you. You want to know the will of God for your life? Be thankful. In everything, give thanks. In all things, give thanks. In all circumstances, give thanks. To the Lord, because he provides. He provides for his church as a church. We should give thanks. We should be thankful to the Lord. To sit down and just reflect on how God has provided for us. I can thank God that as long as I've been an adult, I've never been without a job. I've always had a job. 
from my time in the middle, even in college I worked. By God's grace, I've been able to, to do that. I had one spell of unemployment uh, maybe about 10, 15 years ago. But God even provided during those times. And some of us can probably testify to that too. But do we sit and do we thank God? Lord, thank you. It may not be provision in the way that I dreamed of when I was in high school. When I dreamed of being a princess one day and being swept up by a prince charming and living in a castle forever and taking vacations around the world. It may not have been that type of vision, but God still provides. And he provided for his people, and that brought them joy. And God wants us to joy in his provision. We have cause, saints, to take joy in God's provision. Jesus himself said that the very hairs on our head are numbered in Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31. Matthew 6, he told us not to take thought, not to worry about uh, tomorrow. He says, take no thought for what you shall eat, what you shall drink, or with what you shall be clothed. I think that's 16 verses around 25 through 33. I'm sorry, Matthew 6, I think it's around verse 25 through 33. He says, take no thought. He says, consider the birds of the air. Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And Solomon was not arrayed like those lilies. The birds are there. God provides for them. Don't you know he's going to take care of you, oh, you of little faith? We see in this passage here, God provided. He turned the hearts of the king toward his people whatever they need let it be given them day by day without fail and when that temple was finished they had cause for joy why because God provided he not only provided the means to build the temple he provided the means for them to worship him in the temple God provides the means for us to worship him every day. Do you not know that work is worship? Do you not know that going to school is worship? Do you not know that being a parent, being a husband, being a wife, being single, living by yourself, those are still acts of worship. Why? Because we are to glory and delight and worship God in everything that we do. All of life is worship to God. How do we worship God in those things? When he's provided them for us. That's why Israel rejoiced. His aim is for our joy in his provision. I'm going to look at one last principle. I may try to get through these last two. So principle number three. God's aim is for our joy in praising him. So 
As a result of seeing God's provision and providence in the finishing of the temple, his people rejoiced in praise. Look at verse 16. It says, they celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. With joy. They celebrated with joy. They celebrated with joy and their joy was turned to confession of sin. That was the, the sin offering. That joy led to confession. So they rejoiced in the Lord and they turned to confess their sins. And they worship him. And the sin offering was offered in the midst of the celebration to demonstrate their awareness of their sin and their faith in God. Because they know that God keeps his covenant of love despite their sin. And that is found in Deuteronomy uh, 7 and 9. They were reminded of that scripture. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. So they demonstrated their awareness of their sin and their faith in God. Because they know that God keeps his covenant despite their sin. And this reminds us of Christ, who loved us by dying for us in spite of our sins. Paul said that in Romans 5 and 8, Christ didn't die for us because of our sins. He died for us despite our sins. Paul said God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. So Israel worshiped God, and in the midst of that, they offered their sin offer to him as a demonstration of their awareness of their sin. Now, the offerings here that we see, I want to uh, look at that for a second. These offerings that they offered were relatively uh, minuscule, I mean, sm smaller number uh, compared to the more than 200 um, times more. The offerings that Solomon made at the dedication of the temple were about 200 times more than what we see here. Listen to this, 1 Kings 8 and 63. This is at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Now remember, if you look at uh, Ezra here, they received... Um, young rams, lambs, and so forth and so on. And the number was, uh, verse 17, 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering of 12 male goats. Now this was a few hundred years later at the Solomon's temple. Now, this is in 1 Kings 8 and 63. 
Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to the Lord. 20,000 bulls, 1,000 and uh, 1,000, I'm sorry, 120,000 sheep. That was at that dedication. But the point is, despite the number, despite the number, they were acceptable to the Lord. It didn't matter how many or how few compared to what Solomon did. What mattered was their sacrifice was acceptable to the Lord. The Lord's people offered these sacrifices and offerings with joy and celebration because of the Lord's goodness to them and causing them to uh, rebuild the temple. And this should also be the case for us as believers. Our giving and other acts of worship rendered to God should never be regarded as a small thing. They should be done with joy as we celebrate our covenant-keeping God who is faithful, who is full of grace and mercy, and who forgives us of our sins and strengthens us to live a life that is acceptable to him. That is why we give to God. That is why we serve one another. We're serving to God. Why? Because he's faithful. He's full of grace. He's full of mercy. He forgives us of our sins. And he strengthens us to live a life that is acceptable to him. And what is our response to him? In, is, is worship. We offer offerings and gifts to him because of that. So in this passage, aside from the sin offering, the Lord's people celebrate the Passover as a response to their joy and praise. And we know that the Passover commemorated uh, Yahweh's redemption of the nation of Israel from bondage in uh, Exodus 12. Now here it is commemorated on the 14th day as we see in verse uh, 19 just as the Lord had prescribed in Exodus. And the feast of the unleavened bread was eaten after the Passover in the Exodus. And the Lord had prescribed that in Exodus 12 and 15, as it is written. So they celebrated just as they did coming out of Egyptian bondage, just as the Lord had prescribed. So they were obedient to God's word in their celebration. So it says here, what does all this mean, this celebration, this Passover, and this meal? The feast. First it means that Christ is our Passover lamb. With his blood shed our sins are passed over and forgiven. Talked about that earlier. Our salvation is accomplished by the blood of the lamb. It is not accomplished by anything that we have done. It is accomplished by Christ. The feast of the Passover prefigure a deliverance from sin by the death of Christ who delivered us from the wrath of God to come. Also, Christ is our unleavened bread. The feast of the unleavened bread uh, was a picture of Christ's holy life. Because, remember, leaven represented sin and impurity. 
bread that was unleavened represented purity. It represented a perfect righteousness. So Christ was our perfect righteousness. Christ lived a perfect sinless life. He lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we could not die. So his life was perfect. The two feasts, the Passover and the unleavened bread, are consolidated to form the Lord's Supper. That's where we commemorate Christ's death by what? The blood and the body. The Passover, the blood, the unleavened bread represents the body of Christ. And all those, those two things are combined in the Lord's Supper. And that's why we celebrate it every fourth Sunday as we would do uh, next week. Well, these two celebrations were also performed to show Israel's continued covenant relationship with the Lord. Now that they were back in Jerusalem, they were reestablishing worship uh, of him. In our last principle here, God's aim is for our joy and our obedience. If you look at verses 14 and 18, you will see obedience. They built and prospered. They built and finished it according to the commandment of God. In verse 18, they assigned the priests to their divisions and the Levites to their divisions as it is written in the book of Moses. And then you see 20 and 21. The priests had purified themselves. You know, we studied that when we went through Leviticus. And the children of Israel ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations. So there was purity. God's aim is for our joy in purity and obedience. There's something joyful about biblical purity. And these things were done joyfully to the Lord. They wanted to be pure before their Redeemer. The priests wanted to be pure as they offered the sacrifices. And the people wanted to be pure as they celebrated in the meal. They didn't want to do it with the pagans. There's a holy zeal that comes with worshiping the Lord. And it manifests itself in obedience and purity. We separate ourselves unto the Lord in purity and obedience so that our worship and joy in him may be full. Our joy in God will not be full if we're living impure lives. If we're living in debauchery, if we're living in unrepentant sin, we will not be able to joy in God. But there's joy in purity. There's joy in doing things God's way. Do we really know that? There's great joy in doing everything God's way. It is, it is when we don't do it God's way that brings the greatest what? Misery. And it does bring misery. Yes, we may have moments of happiness. They're very fleeting But deep down inside, in your soul, you're miserable if you're not doing it God's way. In the middle of the night, 
when no one else is around. You know what sets in? Misery. And where does that misery come from? Not obeying God. Not doing things God's way. It don't mean you're going to do it perfectly. Because we're not. We're going to always fall short. But the trajectory of our life. Should be towards purity and obedience to God. Or else. We won't have that joy. That God has granted to us. And I'll say this. Purity of life and obedience to God. Does not rob us of joy. The world tells us different. <laughs> the world tells us joy comes through being, quote, your authentic self, whatever that means. I mean, how more authentic can you get than what you are? But the world says, no, you have to be your authentic self. That you have to seek and satisfy your own desires. No matter how wicked and twisted and uh, against God they are. That your truest joy, your truest liberation is in doing things that make you happy. Doing things that you feel like doing. That makes you feel good. That that is going to be your greatest satisfaction. But you know what it does? It heaps on misery. People who reject God and God's way don't make any mistake about it people they are miserable but they can't show you that they bought the lie they worship created things rather than the creator God as Paul said in Romans 1 and they are miserable they are in misery joy in purity and obedience I'm sorry Purity and obedience brings joy. It does not rob us of joy. They are the heart of true joy. Sin brings pleasure, but never joy. Let me get make a bumper sticker that says that. Let me say that again. I meant to say sin brings brief pleasure, but never joy. This is what uh, John MacArthur said. I would have to quote him. Sin brings brief pleasure, but never joy. And its consequences are devastating both physically and spiritually. Sin does bring brief pleasure. But it never produces joy. Joy is a fruit of the spirit who lives in every believer. Joy is not something, again, that an unbeliever can have. They can have moments of pleasure. God, through his grace, his common grace... Through reigning on the just and the unjust, God can give them fleeting moments of happiness. God can grant them worldly success and worldly fame and worldly acclaim. Yes, God in his mercy will grant them that. He'll grant them moments of pleasure, enjoying a beautiful sunset or sunrise. Enjoying a nice drive or a nice hike in the woods or enjoying the house on a lake with the big boat. Enjoying going to Alabama games and, 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 and having a nice uh, club level uh, seats away from all the peasants that are sweating in the stands. 
Yes, God will give them that pleasure. That sinful pleasure. But in the middle of the night, when no one else is around, and they turn to their small g gods and they don't work, that joy is not there. But for us as believers who are joyful in God because of our purity of life and our obedience to him, we know the true source of joy. The Lord made them joyful, verse 23. Why? Because their covenant with him was renewed. And that was the cause for celebration. His grace was upon them after the hardships of the exile and the rebuilding. Remember, it was delayed for 17 years. So, man, when that temple was built, what great joy they had because of all the hardships they endured. They could sing Psalm 126. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. That's what that psalm was about. It was in response to that. The Lord has done great things for us. Wherefore we are glad. Amen. Let's get to our applications. I'm going to skip through my uh, conclusion. First of all, let us perform our service. You go, uh, go back. Let us perform our services with joy. Everything that we do. But remember, we must delight in God first. Everything we do, let it be joyful. Let us learn to welcome the holy ordinances of the church with joy and attending to them with pleasure. Uh, the communion, the Lord's Supper, that should be a joyful occasion for us. Let us serve the Lord with gladness. Let us pursue joy in the Lord as a primary duty. Let us pursue purity and obedience as a response to God faithfulness these are all things this is how we respond to God being the cause of our joy amen let us pray thank you for your patience father thank you for your word this morning thank you that we see that you are the cause of our joy may we look to you and that temple that was built and see Christ Lord help us to contemplate your provision, your providence. Help us to pursue a life of joy by pursuing you. Your aim is to give us great joy in you and in your sovereign ways. Lord, only when we have true joy in you will we glorify you as we should. Lord, may we forever look to you, our rock, our Redeemer, and our Shepherd for our joy. In Christ's name I pray, amen.